Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the auditorium of AccessibleWorld.org. And the date is Tuesday, January 22nd, 2013. And once again, our dear friend Ira Fistel will be here to speak to us about the history of the American Railroad. But he may start with Europe. We'll see where he's going to take us. He's really worked hard on this series of lectures, and we appreciate it very much. So without further ado, let me turn the microphone or telephone over to Ira Fistel. Ira, thank you for being here this evening. Oh, thank you, Bob. It's always a pleasure to do these things. I, I love doing them. All right, we're going to start um, with an experience I had when I was at the University of Chicago taking a class in physics. Not that I wanted to take physics, but I had to. You know, it was one of those required courses. And in that physics course, uh, they were teaching us about simple machines. I don't know how many people have encountered the concept of the simple machine, um, but what the idea is is that most of our technology is based on some simple concepts which can be expressed in what they call a simple machine. One of those is a wheel. The wheel is a very simple machine. Uh, a lot of things can be done with that wheel, and it can be used in many ways. A second one is an inclined plane. The inclined plane uh, is a way of going up or downhill, and that's a simple machine. Well, the railroad uh, is, in part, can be expressed in terms of the simple machine, the wheel on the inclined plane. Of course, it could also be in a flat plane. Uh, the other aspect that make a railroad a railroad is the guidance system. Now, for example, when you're in your automobile, you have to be the guiding system. You have to steer the car. The railroad does not have the need for a steering wheel uh, because the rails act as a guidance system. How did this come about? Well, it started with the Industrial Revolution in England, which began in the 18th century when Jamie Watts and other people discovered the power of steam. Now, Jamie Watts' story goes, Jamie Watts was sitting in his grandmother's kitchen one day watching the kettle. Uh, uh, you know, the kettle was full of water to make tea, and under it was a hot fire. And pretty soon, Jamie Watts notices that the, uh, the lid of the kettle is being pushed off the kettle by the steam in, inside the kettle that was being generated by that boiling water. Now, in terms of physics, it's very simple. Uh, when water is boiled, the molecules move further apart, and as a result, it needs more space than the cold water did. And if it can't get more space, it, the expansion of the molecules pushes something out of the way. Now, uh, Jamie Watts saw it push the lid of the kettle, and he had an inspiration. He thought, what if we attached something to that kettle lid and let that uh, power of expanding steam push something? And what, of course, it began to push, and the, and the steam engine was a piston. And the piston was then connected to a wheel, and presto, you had a system where a machine could move on a grooved plane, something like that. Uh, 
the whole idea was to harness the power of the expanding steam and make it do useful work. Uh, it started out being used to pump water out of coal mines. And uh, that was a very important thing because the coal industry was just developing in Britain, largely because the Industrial Revolution was uh, getting work done by steam-powered machines, and coal was a much better uh, fuel and a much uh, easier to find fuel than wood. Wood burns very quickly, and so many trees were cut down so quickly that it became obvious that uh, before long, if the Industrial Revolution continued, there wouldn't be a tree left in England. So that uh, the English discovered that coal burns more intensively and gets hotter and stays hotter and produces steam better than wood does. And so coal mining was a byproduct of the development of steam power. And in 1803, a British engineer whose name was Richard Trevithick figured out that moving the coal from where it was dug to where it could be used was the biggest expense in using coal. And he came up with the idea of using a self-guiding track to allow a steam-powered engine to move the coal from the mines to the river, where they could put it on a boat and take it wherever they wanted. And this was as early as 1803. Now, the earliest conception of a, a guided way goes back all the way to the Romans, although the Romans didn't realize it. Uh, in England, the Romans occupied England for 400 or more years, and they did, did what Romans did everywhere. They built things, and one of the things they built everywhere they went was roads. Well, these roads were built wide enough for a horse and a carriage to pass on the, on the road. And over centuries, those uh, stone roads developed grooves. And it was discovered, long about the 17th century or so, that when a horse pulled a group, a wagon in a groove, the horse could pull much more than he could on a flat surface. And it became uh, possible to connect several wagons together. And one horse could pull several wagons instead of just one wagon without the grooves in the Roman roads. So the wheels of the carriages were built exactly wide enough to run in those century, two century old, no, century, what am I saying? Um, Eighteen hundred years, seventeen, eighteen hundred year old grooves in those stone roads. So when Mr. Trevithick and others began to think about using steam, they began to build wagons with uh, the same distance between the wheels as the wagons that ran in the grooves in the Roman roads. And that was the origin of what today is considered the standard gauge of railroads all over the world. Four feet, eight and a half inches between the guiding rails. Instead of grooves in the road, they built rails on top of the ground. Now, the rails were affixed to stone or affixed to wood to keep them in place. And they found that uh, 
keep you the vein and much more efficient to pull loads on self-guiding rails. Like okay. what happens if you try to pull a bunch of wagons connected to each other on a flat road? They get out of line rather quickly. And when they get out of line, they turn over, they, you know, they crash against things. So it became necessary to have the guidance system as part of this idea of pulling more with the same horse. And there you had the elements of the railroad, the potential of a steam locomotive to pull cars on a guideway consisting of rails of some sort. Some rails were made of wood. Later, they used rails made of wood with iron straps fixed to the tops. And still later, iron rails. And after 1863 or so, began to use steel rails. Iron is good, but steel is tougher and stronger. And so steel, as soon as it became available in qualities, the quantities rather, steel became the, the, the uh, main uh, material used for rails. So by the early part of the 19th century, all the ideas were in place. And it was just a matter of refining things to make everything work. It began in England, because, of course, the Industrial Revolution was more advanced in England than anywhere else. And in 1825, the first, what might be called the first railway in the world that we would recognize as a railway today, was built by George Stevenson and his son Robert. And their first locomotive was a locomotive called the Rocket. And it was quite a creation. Uh, it, um, I don't know how you describe it. It certainly didn't look fast. It looked like it had um, a Rube Goldberg con contraption with uh, iron bars going in all different directions and a big, tall smokestack with the smoke coming out of it. Um, whether it's from the fire that was heating the water in the boiler. It had a, a boiler covered with wooden lagging, so you didn't actually see the metal boiler. Anyway, the rocket performed at a, a series of trials that were held of various different uh, machines that people had built, and the rocket was by far the most successful and became the first locomotive to go into service on any railroad in the world in uh, England in 1825. By 1830, uh, there were a number of railway lines working in England. Generally, they were built to connect either a coal mine or something like that with a river or to connect two navigable streams where it was impractical or too expensive to build a canal. So in other words, there was no conception of railroads as long-distance combination of lines over long distances. They were designed to supplement water transport. Now, why is water transport so common everywhere in the world? Because the laws of physics come into play here once again. When a boat is going down water, there's very little friction. The boat doesn't rub against anything. The water is carrying it. Consequently, it takes much less energy to move a boat on, a, on water than it takes to pull something on land. And until the steam engine came along, pulling something on land was the only way to go from one waterway to another. If you didn't have a waterway, the cost of pulling goods across land 
became extremely high. And that meant, in turn, that the value of land depended on access to water transportation. If your land was on a stream, that was great, because you could send your goods, whatever you produced on the land. We were growing cotton, for example, in the south, or you were growing wheat in, the, in Pennsylvania. You could send that product to market by water. If you had to send it by land, it became very expensive, because the only way you could move something on land was practically by horse or mule or oxen power, animal power. That is, unless you wanted to pull it yourself. So that the cost of transportation over land was very high relative to the cost of transportation on water. And that, by the way, is still true today. Even though the cost of land transportation has been brought to a minimum by the railroad, it's still more costly to ship by rail than it is to ship by water. On the other hand, the waterway has built-in limitations of its own. First of all, if you're in a northern climate and it gets cold in the winter, your waterway may freeze. In the summer, uh, when there's no uh, water in the waterway, no rain is falling, the, the, the uh, waterway may get so shallow that you can't move on it. You know, that won't support the boats. Uh, in the spring, when you have heavy rains, it may flood and spoil your land. Uh, and finally, there's another big problem with waterways. Water refuses, simply refuses to run uphill. You can't make a river run uphill. You can pump water up the hill, but that takes a lot of energy and it's expensive. So waterways are limited naturally by the same factors of physics that make the railroad so efficient on land. This brings us to the United States, let's say, in about 1830, well, let's say 1827 or 25, 1825, good place to start. In 1825, the Erie Canal, which was promoted by the governor of New York, DeWitt Clinton, as a way of opening up the interior of the country after the British were finally uh, dispossessed of their forts in 1815, there was nothing left to bar the citizens of the eastern seaboard from moving west into the Trans-Allegheny Territory. That is nothing but transportation. And New York built, at a great cost, what people called DeWitt Clinton's Folly, the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal was dug uh, through uh, a passage in the mountains, uh, the Mohawk Valley, and across the state of New York all the way to Buffalo on Lake Erie. It was called the Erie Canal because it connected Lake Erie with the Hudson River. It opened for traffic in 1825, and boats were pulled by mules on paths along the canal, and they were able to rise up over obstacles uh, because of the locks in the canal that were built in. A lock could be filled with water, the boat would rise, you open the gate to the lock, and there you are on higher ground. And coming back the other way, uh, you open the gate to the lock, and the water goes down, and the boat walk, you know, sails uh, out, pulled by the mules on a lower level. The Erie Canal was the first great transportation improvement in America. And it had a sudden and stunning impact 
far greater than anybody had anticipated. Up until 1825, the biggest cities in North America were Boston and especially Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the second biggest city in the entire British Empire, and then later, uh, you know, after independence, in North America. Why was Philadelphia so big? Well, one reason was because if you look at the map of the United States, you will see, uh, look at the Appalachian Mountains. In New England, there is very little flat land between where the mountains are and where the ocean is. If you look at the map, the Appalachians, the Allegheny Appalachian chain, gradually gets further and further away from the seacoast. And there's more and more flat land between the seacoast and the mountains. In New England, there's very little. When you get down to Pennsylvania, the mountains are halfway across the state, and there's a couple of hundred miles of flat land. When you get further down into the south, the Appalachian chain runs out finally in northern Alabama, hundreds of miles from the seacoast. That had a profound effect on the American economy. Philadelphia had the biggest inland tributary growing area of any city in North America at that time. Why weren't there big cities in the South? Well, there was a reason why there weren't big cities in the South. The same old thing about water transportation. The South is full of long rivers that go inland because there are no mountains to block them. And therefore, if you had a plantation on the water, you'd want to send your goods out by ship, and the ship could come right up to your plantation dock. You didn't need a city which would transform, you know, transmit the goods from land transportation to water transportation. You not only had water transportation, you had seagoing vessels coming right up to your plantation dock. So that the South tended to disperse rather than to build cities. There were no really big cities in the South. Uh, the biggest that one got was Charleston, South Carolina, because of its excellent port. Okay. This also affected industry in a different way. In the far north, in New England, where the land was stony and rocky and there wasn't a lot of uh, easy land to produce crops on, people didn't try to farm the way they did in the south, where you could have large tracts of land and make profitable commercial crops with slave labor. In the north, that wasn't possible. The growing season was shorter and the land was bad and there was no easy water transportation. So what did people in New England do? They became fishermen and boat builders and seamen. Why? Well, uh, the mountains are close to the ocean in New England, and there are lots of trees, very big, tall trees, which make excellent masts and provide timber for making boats. And because there's no flat land uh, between the mountains and the sea are very little. Where is the flat surface? It's underwater. It's called the continental shelf. And the continental shelf is great for breeding fish. The uh, sacred cod of Massachusetts, for example. If you go to Massachusetts today, if you go to Boston, and visit the State House, above the speaker's rostrum is the wooden carving 
of the sacred God of Massachusetts, the fish on which the whole economy of the colony of Massachusetts was founded. So in the north, especially in New England, there were economic spurs derived from geography to become a seagoing, fishing, commercial society. In the south, the uh, land and the growing season combined to make a society uh, which earned its living through commercial agriculture, cash crops for export. The whole of American history is directly affected by what I'm talking about here. And the interesting thing is, if America had not been discovered when it was, it hadn't been discovered until after the development of the steam engine, uh, the history of the whole country might have been very different. But it was discovered before steam power, and before steam was harnessed for land transportation in particular, the only way you could move goods across land was on roads, and the roads were expensive to build and hard to maintain. And even when you had roads, you had to have horses or other animals pull things. And that meant you had to feed them. And not only did you have to feed them, you had to care for them. And not only did you have to care for them, you had to get new ones all the time because the old ones wore out and died. So it was expensive to move things over land, much more than by water. I have some figures here that I think you may find interesting if I can find them. In 18, see, 1827, just before uh, rails were laid in America, the best highway in America was the National Road, and it was built between Baltimore and the Allegheny Mountains across. The cost of holding of hauling uh, a barrel of flour between the Ohio River and the Chesapeake Bay was something like four dollars, which is uh, at that time a lot of money for one barrel of freight. On dirt roads, the cost was much higher. Six bales of cotton from Jackson, Mississippi, in the center of the state, to Vicksburg on the Mississippi, which is only something like 60 or 75 miles, it would take you five yokes of oxen, ten animals, to haul six bales of cotton, and oxen don't move very fast. It might take you days to get that six bales of cotton there. Uh -huh. Here's some figures from the Quartermaster General of the United States Army. In 1877, Transportation of a year's worth of supplies for troops in Dakota Territory cost $71,000. Eight years before, before the railroad came, it cost six times that much, $420,000. And that's savings on only one line over a short, relatively short distance. Putting it another way, ton miles, cost of hauling goods per ton mile. In 1848, when the railroads in America were, uh, were still developing, but had uh, been widely developed, the cost of hauling a ton of freight one mile was about seven cents a mile, a third as little as it cost to haul by road. By 1865, only 17 years later, the cost by uh, rail, because of better railroads and better power, was down to three cents a mile. And today, the railroads can move freight 
across the country at a cost of less than a penny per ton mile. A penny per ton mile. Less than a penny per ton mile. See the economics that make railroads so valuable and make them so essential, especially in this country. Why especially in this country? Well, how big is Britain? Think of how big Britain is. It's an island 450 miles long and not more than maybe a couple hundred miles wide. The whole of Britain could fit into probably the state of, uh, well, let's say, maybe the state of Georgia. Uh, certainly into the state, the state the size of Texas or New Mexico or Arizona or Montana or California. So the distances in Britain are much, much shorter. The distances in America demand long distance, and the further the distance, the more expensive, long distance transportation. And that's why at the uh, end of the War of 1812, which opened up the West to settlement, was such a stimulus to people moving West because there was land out there, and the only people on it were Indians, and, of course, they didn't count. So there was a tremendous rush to the West. Uh, they did, quote, a land office business, as they said. There actually was a, office, a land office in uh, New York State where that phrase came. All right, so we're back in America, and it's after the Erie Canal was built. Well, what happened? New York State built the Erie Canal. Immediately... All of the commerce from western New York State and from beyond New York State, from northern Pennsylvania, from Ohio, uh, northern Ohio, from Michigan, and from as far away as Minnesota and Wisconsin, could go by boat to the Great Lakes, and then by canal to the Hudson River, and then by boat down the river to the, where the uh, Hudson River went into the Atlantic Ocean. And all that traffic began to move through New York. Philadelphia had the bigger territory nearby, but there was no mountain pass, easy mountain passes. There was uh, near Albany, the Mohawk Valley. And so Philadelphia began to fall behind New York in volume of traffic handled. Poor Boston was even worse off because Boston is cut off from the Hudson Valley by the mountains. The mountains are much closer to the sea in New England. And consequently, Boston began to decline as a commercial center. Boston's, uh, they like to call itself the hub of the universe. It's still known as the hub. And if you watch the Boston Bruins hockey team play, uh, their symbol on their jerseys is a wheel with a hub, you know, signifying the hub of the universe. But Boston stopped being the hub of the universe from the time the Erie Canal was built in 1825. There was a fourth port city on the East Coast that had ambitions, and that's Baltimore, Maryland. Baltimore is uh, better situated than Boston, and probably better than Philadelphia because the Potomac Valley goes inland for a ways. But Baltimore was not a big uh, place in the 18th century. Baltimore didn't start to grow until the 19th century in the opening up of the West. Now, each of those cities found itself in competition with New York. New York had the advantage of the Erie Canal being built first, and it began to grow into the great city of North America very early, right after 1825. New York began to grow by leaps and bounds. All right, what's the response? 
Boston, shut out um, by the mountains, decided that they would have to build a tunnel through the mountains. Well, uh, the state of tunnel building technology in 1830 was not up to that task, and it was 20 years or more before Boston got its tunnel, and by that time, Boston was hopelessly out of the race with New York. And that's one reason why Boston and New York are such terrible rivals today, because Boston has never never taken kindly to the fact that its position as hub of the universe was usurped by New York, simply because of the good luck that uh, New York had the Hudson River and the Mohawk Valley. Philadelphia had another problem. Philadelphia built canals into the hinterlands, but the canals ran into mountains west of uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the Alleghenies. Well, somebody, and I don't know who it was, but uh, somebody, uh, some brilliant engineer, figured out a way to, uh, since they couldn't make the water go uphill, they took the boats off the canal, put them on wheeled carts, and hauled them over the mountains on inclined planes, uh, and then down the other side. And this was called the Main Line of Public Works. It was probably the most uh, quaint and fascinating piece of transportation ever built in the United States. Unfortunately, it wasn't as practical as the Erie Canal. Philadelphia could never catch up after the Erie Canal set New York going. But at least uh, Philadelphia did build something. And uh, the, you can still today drive your car on the inclined planes that were built to haul the canal boats over the mountains uh, using stationary steam engines and wheeled carts. Imagine building a canal boat in three sections, and you take the boat out of the water and you separate it into three sections. Each section goes on a little cart. Uh, the, the rope is attached to the cart. The stationary steam engine at the top of the hill pulls each of the carts up the hill, lets it down the other side, and at the bottom of the other side, uh, there's the, the river, and the boat is put together again and put back in the river and sailed on to Pittsburgh. That was the Pennsylvania uh, main line of public works. Baltimore uh, wanted to try something that, to, to attract trade to their city, and they decided to build uh, a railway. However, they didn't know exactly what to do uh, with this railway. They built tracks, all right, but they didn't know how to use power, how to get power. They figured on horses pulling the cars on the tracks. The tracks would make it easier for the horses to pull more cars than they could on a road, but it still wasn't a railroad in the way that we know of a railroad because it was using horsepower. However, in 1829, Peter Cooper, a very important New York merchant, had the inspiration of building a locomotive for himself. It was tiny. It was called the Tom Thumb. That's what, because it was so small. But he took it down to Baltimore, and they tried it out on the line that they were already calling the Baltimore and Ohio, because it was projected to get uh, a line from Baltimore across the Allegheny Mountains to the Ohio River. That was the goal of everybody. Well, Peter Cooper's Tom Thumb uh, actually proved that it could pull cars. It, however, uh, 
took part in what has to be the biggest Pyrrhic victory in history. You know what a Pyrrhic victory is? Pyrrhus was a Greek general who was fighting the Romans uh, in the period after Greece began to decline and Rome was ascending. And Pyrrhus won a big battle against the Romans, after which he said, well, I won the battle, but one more like this, and we're all finished. A Pyrrhic victory, in other words, is a victory that is actually, only appears to be a victory, is actually a, a long-term long a defeat. Well, the biggest Pyrrhic victory in history came about in 1829, when uh, the, the stable that provided the, the horses that were supposed to pull the coaches on this Baltimore Railroad challenged Peter Cooper's engine to a race. Well, <laughs> uh, Cooper's engine took the lead, and then it broke down, and the horse went triumphantly galloping past, and uh, the horse won the race. The biggest Pyrrhic victory in history because it wasn't more than weeks later that it became obvious that steam power would always be able to defeat a horse if it didn't break down. And the Baltimore and Ohio was, began to use steam locomotives, steam power. Well, that's 1829. The next year, Charleston, I mentioned, was the biggest port city in the South, the only big port city in the South. And it had a lot of territory behind it, but no a cheap way of hauling anything to that territory, from that territory, because the rivers didn't go very far inland there. Charleston is based on two rivers, neither of which you've ever heard of. One is called the Ashley, and the other is called the Cooper. And the reason they're called that is because the town was founded by uh, the Earl, um, whose name was Ashley Cooper. The, what was his name? I can't remember what he was Earl of. But anyway... And the Ashley and the Cooper Rivers, as they say in Charleston, come together to join, to form the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, Charleston is not short of uh, self-pride. Anyway, Charleston in 1830 began to build a railroad, similar to what Baltimore had begun the time before, with steam locomotive power. And it was the longest line in the United States when it was built. It was built 100 miles inland. The locomotive that they bought to run it was called the Best Friend of Charleston. Why? Because it was going to haul all these goods to the city of Charleston, and that would make uh, the locomotive the best friend Charleston had. Well, the Best Friend of Charleston was built at the West Point factory in New York and shipped south by boat. And when it started to run, uh, it was very successful, except for one thing. It had a, a safety valve on the boiler prevent the boiler from exploding. Well, the fireman, who was not an educated person, uh, got tired of hearing the safety valve pop, and he tied it down. And guess what happened? <laughs> the best friend of Charleston went up in a spectacular boiler explosion, and that was the end of the best friend. However, they had a second locomotive called the West Point, which took over, and the South Carolina Railroad was the longest and most successful line in America for a while, hauling uh, crops, basically cotton and tobacco, from the interior to the port of Charleston. So by 1831, 1832, things were popping. Other companies were formed elsewhere in, in the country. Uh, we mentioned the 
Mohawk and Hudson that, that uh, paralleled the Erie Canal uh, because there were a lot of locks in the stretch between Albany and Schenectady, and somebody figured out that a railroad would be faster. So the boats with a freight could go down the canal, but passengers might like to take a train. And they put some stagecoaches on wheels and hooked it up to a locomotive, the name of which was, of course, the DeWitt Clinton, after the man who built the canal. And the DeWitt Clinton uh, worked. It, it worked very well. Uh, the only thing was the sparks kept coming out of the chimney, and anybody sitting on top of the uh, stagecoaches uh, enjoyed a rain of cinders and probably had their clothes burned off by the time they got where they were going. So the best friend of Charleston blew up. The DeWitt Clinton set fires. The Tom Thumb broke down. And um, there was another early locomotive brought from England. And this is important, too. There were a couple of them brought from England. Uh, England was more successful in building railroads early than anywhere else. And some Americans, instead of building their own, uh, relied on importing a locomotive from Britain. One of those was the Delaware and Hudson Canal Company. Uh, obviously, the canal was to connect the Delaware River with the Hudson, and the purpose was to move anthracite coal to market. Well, the canal company built some track, and they sent an, an, a, an engineer, whose name was Horatio Allen, to England to bring back a locomotive, and he brought one back all right. It had a lion's face painted on the front of it, and it was called the Sturbridge Lion. Well, it ran once on that track, and it turned out that the engine was much too heavy for the rails, and so they couldn't run it again. They turned it into a stationary steam engine. But the Sturbridge Lion ran on tracks. What were the gauges of the tracks in Britain? Most of the track in Britain was laid to the same gauge as the Roman roads, the ruts in the Roman roads, four feet, eight and a half inches between the rails. And that's why. Standard gauge, we call it today. Uh, it's the standard gauge in North America, in Western Europe, in England, uh, in most of the world. Four feet, eight and a half inches between the rails is the standard gauge. We'll talk about gauges in just a moment because it's very interesting and very important. All right, so Americans importing British engines naturally built the tracks the same gauge as the British imported engine. And so the English gauge, the English standard gauge, was imported to America. But I mentioned before that most of the early railroads were just as designed to either connect a mine to a water course or one water course to another. They weren't over long distances, and they weren't meant to mesh with each other. And you had an interesting situation. One example I can think of is Richmond, Virginia. By the time of the Civil War, there were five railroads running into Richmond from different directions, and none of them had any connection with any of the others. They were all isolated pieces of track. Well, what does that mean? It means they had to unload everything and move it to another train and load it up again. Uh, very inefficient and very costly. Uh, one of the other early engines that I wanted to talk about, because this is a case of American ingenuity and British technology merging. The locomotive was brought from England, and guess what they called it? The John Bull. <laughs> what else? You know, uh, what, what do you call an engine from uh, England? The John Bull. 
And the John Bull was built, like most British engines, with just a flat front. Now, that was all right in Britain, because in Britain, the distances were shorter, and the right-of-ways were largely enclosed and uh, separated from the countryside. But in America, where the, the lines had to be longer, and where there was less capital to build lines, you had flocks of sheep and goats and cows and people running all over the place and getting onto the tracks. So the John Bull had a problem operating in America because it didn't have any way of clearing stock or livestock off the tracks in front of its flat end. Well, the Camden and Amboy Railroad, which was the uh, company that brought the John Bull to America, was to run between Camden, New Jersey, on the Delaware River opposite Philadelphia, and Amboy, uh, in New Jersey, uh, where the port was. The master mechanic of that line was a young man with an absolutely unforgettable name. I've been laughing about this since I was eight or nine years old. His name was Isaac Drips. D-R-I-P-P-S. And Isaac Drips will never be forgotten because he invented the cow catcher. <laughs> he took the John Bull and built a big, long frame out on the front of it, an iron frame, with a point which would pick up and push a cow off the track if it hit one. And this was supported by an extra pair of wheels under the, uh, under the cow catcher. And Isaac Drip's invention uh, made it possible for a locomotive in America to operate on an unenclosed right-of-way and still make its way through uh, hordes of animals. The John Bull was the first locomotive in the world to have a cow catcher. And it was Isaac Drip's invention. <laughs> So next time you want to win some money, uh, bet somebody in a bar uh, to, to ask him to tell you who invented the cow catcher. <laughs> okay, uh, this is 1831. By the end of 1831, uh, there were a few, three or four lines operating. A year later, 1832, there were 23 miles of track in at least six states, Maryland, South Carolina, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Massachusetts, and 23 road miles of track. By 1839, one of the early locomotives on the Reading Railway uh, was built in America by Eastwick and Harrison of Philadelphia. That locomotive was hauling 40 times its own weight at 10 miles an hour. Now that was remarkable for 1839. Only eight short years after the uh, best friend of Charleston blew up and uh, the DeWitt Clinton set everybody's clothes on fire. 40 times its own weight at 10 miles an hour. Eastwick and Harrison were so famous for this that a few years later, when the Tsar of Russia decided to build railroads in Russia. He sent to Eastwick and Harrison and brought them to Russia to build locomotives there. And at the same time, 
he needed engineering talent to build railroads in Russia. The first railroad in Russia was going to be from St. Petersburg to Moscow, obviously the two most important biggest cities in Russia. He wanted, the Tsar wanted that road laid out in a straight line with no curves for the whole distance. Well, if you look at it on the map, it almost is a straight line. That original Russian railroad from St. Petersburg to Moscow is almost a dead straight line. What uh, talent did it take to lay out a, a line like that? You had to know how to build around uh, over grades and over bridges, bridges over streams and watercourses. Uh, sometimes you had to excavate uh, to f make fills to fill a low place or cuts to cut through a high place. And who was studying engineering in the world at that time? Well, the only people who had much use for engineering in the open were soldiers. And the only school in America that was teaching engineering was West Point. And so Army officers, especially engineering officers, were very much in demand to build railroads. One of them in America, one of these officers, was a captain named uh, George Washington Whistler. Now, George Washington Whistler acquired a reputation as a good engineer. And the Russians hired him to come to Moscow and build that first Russian railway. And George Washington Whistler said, sure, pay me and I'll come. And he did. Now, here we come to the classic question of gauges. As I mentioned before, the standard British gauge is four feet, eight and a half. But if railroads were not designed to connect with one another, and there was no anticipation that they would connect with one another, it wasn't necessary for them all to have the same gauge, was it? And so a very wide variety of gauges were tried. In Maine, there were companies that built to a two-foot gauge two feet between the tracks. That's almost like an uh, amusement park train today. Uh, in England, one line was built by Isambard Kingdom Brunel, one of the most fascinating people in history. He was about five feet tall, and his hat was maybe three feet tall. If you see pictures of him, it looks like a comedy. But he was a tremendous engineer for his time, and he thought big. Everything he did was big. He laid out a gauge of seven feet between the rails for the Great Western Railway in England, which he was in charge of. And as early as the 1830s, the Great Western was able to run trains at 60 miles an hour or more because of the stability of that broad gauge, seven feet. Kingdom uh, Brunel uh, looked down on everybody else's gauge because none of the others was as stable as that wide seven foot. As you can figure out, the wider the gauge, the more stability you're going to get, especially if the, um, the rails are strong and the floor of the engine is strong. Uh, you'll have more stability, there's less likely to tip over. The narrower the gauge, the less stability you have. But broad gauge costs more money to build. It can't go around curves as sharp and it's, it requires more land, uh, and it requires more engineering and construction. So Brunel's gauge was appropriate for a wealthy country like England at the time, 
whereas it was not necessarily appropriate in America. It was tried in America. Uh, broad gauge was tried in America, all right. Uh, not seven feet, but six feet gauge. And that six-foot gauge was the original gauge of the New York and Erie line in New York. Uh, there were others to uh, smaller and larger, but most American railroads in the northern part of the country, where the uh, influence of England was the strongest and where the English engines were imported, most of the northern railroads were built to that four-foot, eight-and-a-half-inch gauge that had been derived from the Roman roads. But in the South, where the lines never were anticipated as connected with anything outside the South, and where they weren't even thought of as connected with each other, they were simply ways of hauling goods to, uh, to a water course, the gauge of the, most of the Southern lines was five feet. And that was all right, as long as they weren't expected to connect with anything else. Well, George Washington Whistler came to Russia and chose the gauge for the Tsar's new railroad. And being influenced by the southern influences and by uh, figuring that five feet was more stable than four, eight and a half, and it wasn't going to matter because you weren't going to connect with anything, George Washington Whistler determined five feet as the gauge for the Russian railways. And to this very day, the Russian railways are five feet, whereas Western Europe is all four feet, eight and a half. And this meant that you could not run straight through from Germany to Russia because there was a change of gauge in the middle. <laughs> in uh, the time when Germany conquered Poland and uh, well, pushed the Russians back, the Germans changed the gauge on some of the Russian-built uh, railways from five feet to four, eight and a half. Today, they still have to change wheels or change uh, the position of wheels now, on the border between uh, Poland and Germany, I think, or between Poland and Russia, uh, because the gauge difference is, is in the way. Nowadays, there's technology which they can do that with. But in the World War I, for example, it just played havoc with transportation because you couldn't go through on one gauge from Russia into Western Europe. Spain and Portugal had their own gauge, five feet six, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and that gauge has isolated Spain from North, the rest of Western Europe ever since railroads were built. Nowadays, uh, they are now able to move wheels so that they can run through, but that's very new. It's, uh, so Europe, even though Western Europe is largely uh, you know, compact, had gauge difficulties. Well, America had two. Um, and four feet, eight and a half, the northern standard would not mix with five feet, the southern standard. In the Civil War, that became a problem. Uh, when Stonewall Jackson ran one of his famous raids, there weren't enough engines in the South, and they didn't have the means to build them. So what did they do? They stole them. Jackson and his troops went up into Maryland and uh, took engines from the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and put them, pulled them by ox cart down the roads to the South and then had to change the gauge from four feet, eight and a half to five feet before they could use them. All right, this brings us to Abraham Lincoln in 1863. Uh, you all have talked before, in fact, I talked about it last, uh, last time, about how important 
Lincoln was in the history of the United States, not only in the sense of the Civil War, but for some of the other things he did and his program did. And one of the things in Lincoln's program was a Pacific Railroad Act. Now, ever since California came into the Union in 1849 with the gold rush, uh, there had been demand for a railroad to California from the rest of the United States. But the two sections, the South and the North, agreed on probably only one thing, which was that whichever one of those sections was the terminus of the Pacific Railroad, that section would dominate the country in the future. The Southerners demanded a railroad starting in New Orleans or Memphis and going west from there. The Northerners demanded St. Louis or Chicago. And in 1853, the Southerners uh, were being frustrated in Congress because uh, it was said that the survey that they were proposing ran through Mexican territory, and no American railroad should run through Mexican territory on the way to California. Well, the president was Franklin Pierce, who, while he was a northerner, was what they called a doe face, a northerner of southern principles. And he sent uh, James Gadsden of Alabama to Mexico City to negotiate with the Mexicans for the purchase of a piece of territory south of the Gila River in what is now Arizona, New Mexico. And that purchase was completed in 1853 for one and only one reason, because the Southern Railway Survey went through it on the way to California. And that removed one of the Northerners' biggest talking points in trying to keep Congress from designating New Orleans or Memphis as the starting point for the Pacific Railroad, and thus making the South the dominant section in the future. Well, the Northerners had an answer, particularly Stephen Douglas. Stephen Douglas was a senator from Illinois. He wanted to be president. He was the uh, destined candidate of the Democratic Party in 1856. And he wanted, among other things, was a big landholder in Chicago, his home city. And Douglas introduced a bill in Congress in 1854 to do what the Gadsden Purchase had done to the, to the Northerners, take away the biggest argument against a Northern line that the Southerners could make. And that was that the Northern line went through Indian territory and wouldn't uh, have any protection. So Douglas introduced what he called the Kansas-Nebraska Act one of the most uh, controversial pieces of legislation ever. To this day, we don't know exactly what was in his mind when he did it. Was it because he had land in Chicago? Was it because he was a northern sectionalist? What was it? But anyway, it was because he wanted to be president. He introduced the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which did create two territories out of what was really one, the Nebraska Territory. Kansas, further south, Nebraska, further north. And Douglas, in order to win Southern support for his presidential run, 56, put in a provision that while Nebraska, again, according to the Missouri Compromise, being north of 36 degrees, 30 minutes uh, latitude, Nebraska would have no slavery. But to attract Southern support, he proposed that Kansas, the southern part of the Kansas-Nebraska territory, be allowed to choose for itself whether it would have slavery or not uh, by popular sovereignty, as it was called. Well, it practically tore the country apart. And 
the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act was actually passed, and people began to pour into Kansas from both sides. Uh, each side tried to outvote the other, and it started uh, what they called Bleeding Kansas, and uh, that was simply a, a, like a, a step leading towards the Civil War. However, once the South succeeded, <clears throat> the Northern Congress, without the Southern members present, was able to do anything that they wanted to do. And this Congress was dominated by the Republican Party, and the Republican Party was the party which wanted internal improvements, wanted to build railroads, and organized the Pacific Railroad Act, uh, which Abraham Lincoln signed. And the act gave Lincoln the power to designate where the Pacific Railroad would start, and even more important, what gauge it was to be built to. Had the Pacific Railroad been built by the Southerners, it would have been five feet, and the northern four-foot-eight-and-a-half-inch games would have been frozen out of all the traffic to California because nobody ever believed at that time that there would be more than one railroad to California. Building one was an incredible task. Building more than one, who needed it? So the Pacific Railroad Act gave Lincoln the power to determine which gauge and what the starting point would be. He chose as the starting point Council Bluffs, Iowa, uh, across the Missouri River from Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, he chose Council Bluffs partly because it was the home of General Grenville M. Dodge, who was uh, to emerge as the chief engineer of the Pacific Railroad, and secondly because it was 450 miles from Chicago and there were already lines building out to it. And he designated the gauge to be the American standard gauge of four feet eight and a half. And when the line was completed in 1869, it was the southern five-foot gauge lines that were shut out of the California traffic. Anything coming over the Pacific Railroad went to the north and stayed in the north because the gauge difference was so important. It wasn't until 1881 or 82 that in one day, after months of preparation, the southern lines all changed to four foot eight and a half. In other words, they surrendered. Put it the, the Second Civil War, the War of the Gauges. I find this stuff incredibly fascinating. Now let's talk about one more thing that's characteristic of American lines as compared to Europe, and particularly compared to England. What did you build in England? You built from one existing city or community to another to move people and goods. In America, you built before there were any people living there. You built into the wilderness. The railroad became the tool for expanding the country. And that's the reason why the steam locomotive is so important and the timing of the steam locomotive is so important. Had the steam locomotive not been invented at the time it was, the normal course of traffic in America on the rivers is north to south, down the Ohio and the Missouri, down the Mississippi to the port of New Orleans. Uh, there are a number of other, the Potomac flows into the Atlantic, um, well, all those other rivers that flow from the center largely to the south and east, but especially the south, the Mississippi Valley system. Because of the steam locomotive, however, the whole uh, axis of the country was changed. Instead of being the axis being north to south, the axis became east to west. 
And to this day, the strongest and most important lines in the country are east-west lines, They're predominantly. Uh, there are only three or four major north-south lines in the country. One is along the east coast from uh, New England all the way down to Florida. The second is in the Mississippi Valley. The third is from uh, Montana through Denver into Texas. And the fourth is down the Pacific Coast. You won't find major north-south lines anywhere else. But there are many east-west lines crossing the country, and the east-west lines have always been the dominant lines because the dominant movement of materials in this country, not people, but freight, the dominant movement of freight is from the west to the east and always has been. From the producing lands of the west, where the wheat is grown, where the uh, cattle are, uh, to the east where the markets are. And that is true to this day. Eastbound traffic is the heaviest, and uh, it also contains the heaviest materials. The biggest commodity and moved on the railroads today is coal. And the biggest movement is from Montana, where the low sulfur coal lines are in Wyoming, Wyoming and Montana, east to power plants all the way to the east coast. The Kentucky and Illinois and Indiana coal is less important because it's higher sulfur content. When the environment became a consideration, it boosted the low-cost strip mining, low-sulfur coal from the West. And it's cheaper because of rail transportation. It's cheaper to bring that low-sulfur coal hundreds and thousands of miles east than it is to dig coal in underground mines in the east and burn it there. Uh, right? How did Chicago become the great railroad center in North America? Well, again, you look at the map. What is right at Chicago's doorstep? Lake Michigan. Right? Lake Michigan is like a giant finger dipping down from the Canadian border into Illinois, all the way down to Illinois. Yeah. A barrier to building anything across from, say, uh, Detroit or anywhere further north in Chicago. You can't go across the lake by rail. Uh, they have done it with boats over the years, but uh, it's not economical anymore. But Chicago is right where the uh, lake ends. And so any line that was going westward well, from the northeast would sooner or later get to Chicago. By 1852, New York and Chicago were already connected by rail. And by the 1880s, they were connected by several lines between New York and Chicago. And all those lines have to curl around the south end of Lake Michigan and into the city. Not only is Chicago on the east-west axis of the country, it's also on the waterway axis, the north-south waterway, between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi Valley. It goes right through Chicago. The original Chicago portage uh, was uh, explored by Marquette and Juliet in a, in a canoe. Uh, they portaged, they found an easy portage from the Illinois River system to Lake Michigan. Well, it's now a canal and a uh, river system, but it's still a major water route from Canada and the Northeast all the way to the Port of New Orleans. So Chicago sits at the crossroads of North America, the rails and highways east and west, the waterways and highways north and south. They all go through Chicago. 
And I think that's where I'm going to leave it for tonight. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. But you can see the impact of the railroads and the steam locomotive have changed the direction of the country, changed the economy of the country, changed everything, uh, made the United States what it is. The only country that owes more to railroads in its national development, Canada. Canada wouldn't be Canada if it hadn't been for the railroads. Uh, you know, Canada was confederated out of several different independent provinces, one of which was on the West Coast, British Columbia. And the only way that the confederation in Canada would work was if they had railroad connecting all these far-flung uh, provinces. And it was part of the Confederation of Canada that a Canadian Pacific Railroad be built. And so Canada, even more than the United States, grew up with and because of the railroads. So that's where we are right now. Well, I, I read a tremendous lesson in history and geography. I learned so much just listening to you geographically as well as historically. Um, let's see if we have any questions from anyone on the phone first. No, it's it's me. It's Ruthann. Oh, Ruthann, I'm yeah. sorry, hon. As far as time is concerned, uh, oh yeah, did the railroads have anything to do with time becoming uniform throughout the oh, country? Oh, absolutely, yes, absolutely. That's the reason why we have standard time. See, in each uh, community, set its clocks by where the sun was at noon, and of course, for every distance, a few miles. Uh, the sun is not in the same place at noon uh, in the same time. But this is the classic example, Buffalo, New York. The station in Buffalo served six or seven different railroads from different parts of the country, and every one of them ran on different time, so that it was extremely confusing, to say the least. And when you start operating trains, time becomes extremely important. The conductor and the engineer must know exactly the time and it must be exactly the same time that other conductors and engineers know because trains have to meet at a certain place at a certain time. Otherwise, you have two trains going opposite directions on a single track, which is not a good idea. So time was essential. And it was the general managers of the railroads who called the General Time Convention, which met in, I think it was 1880-something, and established standard time for operation of railroads. Now, there are six time zones in North America. We think of four, but there are actually six. One is Atlantic time, which is uh, the time of the eastern maritime provinces in Canada, one hour earlier than Eastern Standard Time. Then there's hmm. Eastern, which is one hour ahead of Central, which is one hour ahead of Mountain, which is one hour ahead of Pacific, which is one hour ahead of Alaska. And then there's Hawaii, which is uh, on its own time schedule altogether. But yes, it was the railroads required, who needed to have, who had to have a standard time system. And you'd be surprised at all the uh, tremendous opposition there was to it. Uh, well, this is not God's time. God's time is set by the sun. Well, <laughs> uh, that doesn't do you any good if you're trying to run a national system where the time changes uh, every few minutes, every few miles. Uh, it's a different time because the sun is, a, is overhead at a different time. So, yes, the railroads were the spur and the creators of our system of standard time today. There's a town in Nebraska which changes time zones in the middle of the town. 
it's incredible <laughs> we've been through that that place. I think it's, you might be thinking of uh, McCook, Nebraska. North Platte. North Platte, Nebraska, I believe. North Platte, yeah. Yeah, I believe it's the it same is. way. Yeah, yeah. North Platte. Uh, one more. The Secretary of War was Jeff Davis in the early 50s, and he couldn't steer it to the south? Or did he? Davis, the railroad? Davis was the man. President Davis was the man who picked out Gadsden to go to Alabama, uh, from Alabama. Oh, I to see. To be the southern and, emissary uh, to Gadsden Mexico. Person. The Gadsden person. Yes, Jefferson Davis was responsible for that southern survey in the first place. He was a military academy graduate. Right. Uh, anyone else on the phone wishing to ask a question? Can you hear me? Go ahead, me? Don. Okay, I pushed the wrong button there earlier. Um, but I never quite understood the Roman roads and the grooves and the, how it would be <laughs> more efficient. Uh, the, 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 I guess they had iron wheels or less, less friction or what? Does anybody yeah, explain? Yeah, friction. And, of course, also, not only does it reduce friction, but you don't have the problem of, of wheels getting out of the line, which is a serious oh. problem, as you can tell, oh. if you go on a highway. Uh, if, you're not, if your car uh, has wheels that can get out of line, they will get out of line. Oh. There's no guideway. So the elements of the railroad are steam or other artificial power, uh, a, a guideway, and a permanent, uh, permanent uh, right away. Right. Yeah. Iowa, we're looking forward to continuing this. This is really exciting. We just all love trains around here. I'm just, well, we love railroads. The stories get better and better. All right. Thank Thanks, Iowa. Goodbye now, and thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, okay. guys.